Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Two years ago, I headed up to near Tun Mun to walk through and take a look at an intact dragon kiln that was built in the 1940s. It's typical of a number of kilns that previously could be found throughout Hong Kong, and some still exist on the mainland. It goes 20 meters up a slope and was surrounded by a community of kiln workers headed by a foreman who once the kiln was filled with clay soup pots, ceramic kitchen utensils, figurines, bowls and other items would make the decision to fire up the kiln to bake the items. And this kiln positioned on a hillside would burn red, just like a dragon's fiery breath. Liz Lau is the vice chairperson of the Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group. They've been campaigning to get the kiln preserved, and part of that work is a book called Objects of the Kiln, which she and other ceramic artists, writers and photographers are creating as a way to increase awareness about the kiln. I asked Liz Lau, first of all, to talk to me about the Dragon Kiln at Castle Peak. So the Castle Peak pottery kiln or sometimes castle peak dragon kiln is basically a ceramic kiln which is an oven for firing ceramics that was built in the 40s it was built in the 40s initially to make products that would have been exported to the states but eventually they made primarily ceramic objects that were used around hong kong so it was really to supply the local community and they made things like you know what we would still be quite familiar with today like rice clay pots they would make things like clay water pipes which to this day we would still see in country parks, for instance. They also made things like reburial urns. In Chinese culture, you will bury your ancestor, your father or your mother when they died. But a few years later, you will dig them back up and then put them in an urn and pay your respects to them that way moving forward. So they also made things like this. So the, the kind of products that were made at the, in this kiln were really kind of things that had to do with everyday to day life. And occasionally, because the foreman that ran this kiln was a very skilled foreman, he would reserve tiny bits of space for artists to put their um, sculptures or figurines in and so there were a small number of artworks that came out of it as well but basically this kiln was active from the 40s up until the early 80s from the 70s late 70s onwards a lot of the production began moving northwards toward the mainland and it was really the economy that kind of made it obsolete and in the 80s the colonial government at that point purchased this piece of land hoping to turn it into what they called a living museum and the architectural services department in the government at that point actually started doing blueprints for how to turn this into a living museum that Hong Kongers could enjoy. Now, unfortunately, that project was kind of forgotten in the late 80s. And for all these many years, it's been kind of sitting in Tun Mun on this part of Castle Peak Road, just kind of backing off of Maclehose Trail. And it's just been sitting there for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And it wasn't until quite recently, about four years ago, when the government started having interest in redeveloping that land into housing, that we started to form ourselves as a Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group to talk about really the value of this kiln and the need to not tear it apart, but rather to really conserve it, revitalize it, and 
make it available once again to people in Hong Kong to see, to understand a bit of the history and the ceramic tradition that was actually very much a part of the, uh, Hong Kong throughout uh, the last century. Indeed, because I mean, this dragon kiln is a wonderful example, as you say, at Castle Peak, because it's complete. And uh, there would have been a number of these kilns around Hong Kong, but this is this is one that, that, that people can actually walk inside, as I've done, and uh, actually have a look inside. You can really imagine how it would have been fired up and how it would have glowed on the hillside as, as the fire basically burnt the bricks or rather heated up the bricks to make them solid and, as you say, the figurines and uh, all sort of other aspects that were put inside. But the bricks on the outside you'd be able to see glow on the hillside, which must have been a, quite a sight. So you've been working to conserve this kiln. How far along are you with that? Well, we started work in 2016. We formally formed our concern group in 2017, and we've been working on it ever since. There's several aspects to our work. One of it is directly trying to get in touch with various departments and individuals in the government and, and to lobby and to help them understand the, the value, this, this actually this jewel that we have in Hong Kong. Um, it's, it's quite rare when you tell somebody in Hong Kong there is a piece of architecture that's from the 40s. I mean, that's, that's rare in itself. And as you say, the fact that it is complete that it is not in some kind of a ruin makes it even more valuable. So that's a big part of what we're doing. Lobbying, we've, we've spoken at things like, you know, town planning boards and and um, had meetings with AMO, um, the Antiques Monument Office, um, and, and various people in the government that's responsible for conservation. I would say we, we've had some success. In uh, end of 2018, we were notified that the government has absolutely decided not to tear down the kiln. But what we were a bit disappointed to learn was that actually only about 30 meters away, they will be building a public housing building that will be 42 stories high. That was quite disappointing for us because even though the kiln itself wasn't going to be destroyed, the construction was going to be a threat to the kiln. And as we can see, you know, with people living so close to it, just meters away, then that really takes away some of the, the revitalization or the refiring of the kiln that we hope to see in the future. And so it, it took out a lot of the, the opportunities for how we could revive it in, in, in a meaningful way. But besides lobbying the government, the other thing that we've been doing is just letting people know that this exists. We've still got a long way to go. We've, we've done a lot of events, whether it's doing ceramic workshops, we do street carnivals, we've um, got a Facebook page where all the interesting things that we, in, in our own learning, in our own research we found out about the kiln we usually try to put it on facebook and let more people know and it's actually been amazing over the course of the last few years how many people find this interesting and not just kind of a ceramics passionate not like me but actually a lot of hong kongers find it interesting because it's a slice of hong kong history yeah it, it tells you what life was like back then and actually what we found as well is uh, we get a lot of ceramic artists from abroad that follow our page because they also want to understand how ceramics developed in other parts of the world world. So a lot of people are interested in, in the stories of the kiln and it's the human side of it and, and what life was like and all that that really get people going. Absolutely, because it's the community around it, it's the, it's the, the kiln workers, it's the foreman and it's also a piece of industrial architecture in Hong Kong which is, is I would say less common than some other forms of architecture here and, and it's so uh, wonderfully preserved. So in addition to, as you say, getting the message out in a variety of ways, lobbying the government, you've also created a book. Yes. So we've been able to get some funding from two main organizations and we're very grateful for their support. One is Lord Wilson Heritage Trust. 
The other is a design trust. So they've both given us some funding to work on a book to really capture some of the research that we've done. But that we are also actually still needing some additional funding. So that's why recently we've kicked off a crowdfund for the book. And it was so happy actually to say that we, we had a crowdfund for one month, planned for one month. And by the third day, we had met our target. Oh, wow. um, so that actually, once again, gave us, <laughs> yeah, thank you. That gave us this huge shot in the arm, you know, with coronavirus and all these things yeah. happening right now. And yeah, the whole idea of the book is, you know, we, we want to tell the stories that everybody would appreciate. I think of all the research that we've done, we're picking the things that people can really identify with. So the, the starting point is it's called Objects of the Kiln. So what we've done is um, there, there were many different things fired at the kiln, but we've picked nine objects that will really speak to, especially for Hong Kongers, is something that they will recognize. Like I said before, one object might be about clay pots, the ones that, you know, you will still see people making rice in or in soups or, or, or Chinese medicine. Another is um, what we call wine bottles. So there is a very famous wine company in Hong Kong that has been here since the turn of the last century. And actually, this dragon kiln made wine bottles for them. And from everything we can tell, these wine bottles were then exported to the United States. So they, they really went places. The and so clay Pipes I was just telling you about. Yeah, tell me a little bit more. Let's just linger on the wine for a second. So these are like wine bottles, like you sort of have Bordeaux wine bottles, or are they 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 caskets for uh, rice wine? Or so the shape of these wine bottles. The best way to describe them is you've probably seen them in these kind of you know old martial arts movies where you have like this you know this martial arts expert and he's drinking his wine and you know pouring it all over themselves they're in these kind of they're they've got this narrow little rim at the mouth and then it, it's it's basically this ball this ball shape of a bottle ah. um and by bottle i really mean ceramic bottle so it's not glass it's really ceramic jugs wine jugs and it, you can hold it quite well in in your hand these were bottles that were made with uh, plaster molds and then attached three-part plaster mold and then attached together and we have actually many of the molds that we found at the kiln but only a very limited number of the bottles that are left because, of course, any of the good ones would have been sold off and shipped off. So the only ones that we still have the kiln are all the, the seconds, you know, the ones that have a, a crack in it or there's a bubble in it. It's the ones that didn't pass the, t the, the quality test, you know. We've got a few of those bottles and it's still got the kind of embossing of the company, the, the Wing Lei, Wai Wing Lei, Wai company's name at the bottom. And why I say we, we have an idea that it was exported to the States is on the side of the bottle, there is a line that actually says says that, you know, it's almost like a legal phrase that kind of says, you know, that this, this wine cannot be resold. And when we search that line online, we realize that in the States, wine that was sold had exactly that sentence and only in the States. So we don't know for sure, but we have a pretty good guess that these wines, which we do know were sold abroad, mainly to Chinese communities that lived abroad, that most likely this was, this was something that was exported. And so they made these bottles to be shipped abroad with, with the wine in it. Oh, so the wine came from Hong Kong? Yes. The, so the wine, the winemaker came from Hong Kong. They initially started in the south part of China, but I think by 19, very early 1900s, they moved to Hong Kong and they are still in Songwan right now. So if you look up Wing Li Wai, they still have a shop. And now besides wine, they also sell fruits and they also sell crabs. Um, but, you know, whatever makes the business, because that's actually a really long running family. Yes. Business. What's their wine like? Well, it's actually quite funny because I've been talking about these bottles for so long that a few weeks ago. Once somebody in our group went and bought a bottle, so we've now been drinking it. I should um, hope so. It is a, it is a um, traditional Chinese, um, what they call sorghum-based wine, but they also put 
a few Chinese medicine in it, and it has a bit of a taste of cinnamon. And actually, it is a strong wine. But when I tried it, I quite liked it. You know, <laughs> but no, that's a, so that's interesting—a real mixed heritage. So this wine company comes, you know, about three or four decades before the uh, Castle Peak Dragon Kiln, and then um, you know the, the kiln is actually used to make these bottles. And what I love about what you're telling me is that you would have had all the good ones exported to the US, and hopefully there's a few saved here. But what we've actually got for heritage purposes are the rejects. Well, yeah, it's actually really funny. If, if you go onto these, you know, these websites, whether, you know, it's, it's the Ebays or, or, you know, even the Hong Kong, the secondhand sites where you can buy things, you can put these, you can search for these. And um, sometimes you can still buy them. But actually, I've never seen one as old as the ones that are from the kiln. So, yeah. So going back to your book, you, you so you've got all of these different, you've got, you choose nine objects from the kiln, one of which is uh, this wine bottle. So tell me a bit, a little bit more about some of the other objects. Well, another one that we found really interesting is um, we're, we're going to have one chapter talk a little bit about the gardenware that used to be in Hong Kong. So uh, besides making things that, you know, they were for the kitchen and whatnot, the foreman of the kiln, a man by the name of Lang Sam, Lang Sam, um, he came to Hong Kong in 1950s already as a quite well-known master, ceramic master and kiln master from a place called Shiwan in mainland China. It's very close to Foshan. And when he came, he was eventually hired to be the foreman. But he actually was part of a guild in Shiwan called the Flower Pot Guild. And in Shiwan, it was such a developed industry that there were, you know, it, in some versions, it says it's 24 guilds. There were times when there were more than 30 guilds. There were times when it was less. But essentially, it was such a developed industry that it was organized by guilds. And you could only be somebody producing those things if you were part of a guild. Lang Sam was part of the flower pot guild, but flower pots was not the only thing he made. It was everything that would be in a garden. So that could include roof tiles, balustrades, garden furniture, ceramic garden furniture, like you could almost imagine, like, you know, sometimes they have these elephants, ceramic elephants that you would sit on like a chair, but it's in the shape of a little elephant. I mean, he made all kinds of things like that. And one of the things he made were, were these kind of decorative tiles, which are very elaborate, which he engraved by hand and what we've learned actually with our research is all of these pieces were coming from his own very hand when he was making wine jars and things he had workers and he had his family help but he was such a master ceramicist that when it came to all these kind of things that were part of his guild even when he came to Hong Kong he was making all of these molds and the pieces by hand and in our minds probably when you would have seen things like this is I think it's actually called Chinese Renaissance architecture you know that style that you still sometimes see around in, in old houses with the green tiles, mm. with the green kind of bamboo balustrades yeah. on windows, things like that. He did stuff like this. And in these cases, he wouldn't have been just doing them in big lots. He would only have been doing them because maybe some rich family goes to him and says, hey, I have this cottage or this garden or this you know house I need decorated and I need somebody now to create these tiles for me and to, to do these things. Um, and often with symbolism that would be auspicious. He would be getting commissions to do them. So actually one of our chapters is going to be about these these really beautiful decorative tiles. It was so ornate and he actually made all of them by hand. We have one or two pieces of the finished products and once again we still have all the molds. One of the funniest ones we'll cover in the book as well is 
these elephants that he used to make, there's a mold for it that well, up till now, I think we found about 20 pieces of this elephant mold. What we're hoping to do at some point is bring a few experts together and actually try to reconstruct this elephant. But it could be as we're discovering things at the kiln that there's more than 20 pieces and, and the rest of this elephant will come up. But right now, you know, we, we found one piece, which is the tail, one piece, which is like the nose of trunk. Oh, so each part of the elephant is a different mold. Yeah. So you would actually use this plaster mold to make these different parts. When it comes off the mold, then you assemble the elephant oh, wow. together. But, you know, us trying to see just from the mold, trying to understand, you know, where are all the bits and pieces and how would you even begin to put them together? I think that's going to be some some very serious investigative work that we will be doing at some point. But we will cover some of that in the book as well. Now, sidetracking from the book a moment. So, I mean, because you're all very experienced ceramicists, you know, you've got some sort of major artists among you. Now, in terms of taking like one of those tile molds, would it, is it, has it become brittle over the years or could you actually realistically say, right, okay, we'll try and emulate those tiles? We absolutely would like to try. And um, we do have to be very careful, as you said, you know, the, the molds are made of plaster. You know, plaster molds, um, whether new or old, can be a bit fragile. But actually, you know, if, if you handle them carefully, you can still use them, even though it's been 20, 30 years. So that's absolutely one of the things that we were hoping to do, taking clay and recreating some of these pieces, um, just so that we can understand not only um, what that making process was, you know, how it was it was manufactured, but also then actually see these pieces. And, and we may even fire them, not at the kiln, because we can't fire the kiln at the moment, but to maybe fire them in, in, in a studio and to at least have these pieces that we could see again. Um, I, I think it's it's hard to describe, you know, this kiln was not just a place where ceramics was fired. Right around the kiln was all the workshops. So it was actually the whole production process from, you know, buying the materials that allowed them to make the clay. They used to have these big tanks where they make the clay then they take the clay and then they put them in molds they had to make the molds they had to glaze them the whole thing was actually as you say an industrial kind of a, a process with with the firing at the very end of it and so what we hope to do is actually make all of those steps and that whole process and how a little family-run business with a limited number of workers used to used to make a living off of it now, you've managed to get the funding, as you say, from the Lord Wilson Heritage Trust and other sources and also through crowdfunding. Now, the book, when is it going to be available and uh, where can we find it and even buy it? Well, for now, the crowdfund, we have reached the target, but actually the best way to order the book is still via the crowdfund. Um, the crowdfund is active until July 31st. One way to find it is just going on Kickstarter and searching Dragon Kiln. Another is going onto our Facebook page for the Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group. We're still actively working on the book. We've got you know, a good part of the draft in Chinese. We will be translating it in English. So actually, for people who don't read Chinese, the book is fully bilingual. But besides the, the words, actually, we have so many photos, newly taken photos, but also old photos from the 70s, 60s, 80s that have never been published before. And we've even engaged an illustrator to help us kind of, you know, these things that I've been describing of how they used to make things. We don't have photos anymore. So we have an illustrator who's actually recreating these scenarios with us. And we really hope to kind of show really how lively this kiln would have been in its heyday. The best way to secure a copy of the book is on the crowdfund. We hope to have it 
launched in December. We will be sending them out once the the book is published. And at that point, we we hope to interest more booksellers to sell the book for us. But at, at this moment, we actually don't have a, a wide distribution network. That's something still to work on. So yes, if if people want to order a copy via your crowdfunding before the thirty first, but also there will be opportunities later on to source the book. I'm sure that we will be we will be making them available through through our website or our, our Facebook as well. Yeah. Now we were talking about the wine bottle and uh, also uh, the molds that were used to create, as you say, these these gardenware items, including these ceramic elephants that you could sit on. What other items are on that nine item list? Well, another one I mentioned a little bit earlier are the clay water pipes that you can still see mm. in country parks. But actually, you know, if, if you look at some old Tonglaos, they will have them as well. So these were not used only in country parks; they were used in buildings. So the tenement um, tenement buildings. Tenement buildings, and one place you can see them nowadays is if you go into Causeway Bay, Caroline Hill area, just off Layton Road. They've actually taken the building apart, but there is this part of the wall with this huge, very thick、um, ceramic pipe that runs all. All the way up it, you know, it must be at least forty or fifty feet high. That one is not only in place, but it still is working to drain rainwater. So that that's, you know, they, they really last as long as they don't break. They last forever. Another one that we're doing is what we call the clay piggy banks or penny banks. So in the past, the penny banks in Hong Kong were made of ceramics, but you couldn't open them. You could put money in it, coins and stuff. And usually, at Chinese New Year, you would get, you know, little lices. Kids would put their money in it, but In order to get your money out, you'd actually have to break it. So it's it's really kind of one-way traffic type of penny banks. And so we actually found some of these as well. Once again, very ornately decorated, done by the hand of Lung Sum. But these clay penny banks, many kids would have had them. And actually, one of the things that kids used to do, and we're now talking about the 70s, you know, how to get the money out of it without breaking it. And there are all kinds of ways. Whether you're using a little ruler or a pencil to kind of stick into the little slot and try to shake the money loose. That's something that that people of a certain age will will identify with. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems almost a shame to sort of ruin that artwork. But yeah, I could understand the temptation. Just smash the piggy bank and get the money. So you've had these ceramic piggy banks, and what else? Actually, one of the items that we've put in there, which which might be a little bit strange, is the kiln bricks. So the kiln is made up of pieces of bricks, and those are actually clay bricks. And why we've actually picked them as one of the items is, well, it is architecture, but they were also actually the first. Items fired from the kiln. When they used to make this kiln, imagine they're they're kind of on the side of this hill. There is no kiln to fire anything, so they would use a mold, make these kiln bricks, which are fan shaped, which then they assemble into these rows of arcs. It's basically these arches that that go all the way up the mountain, and they just slot them all together in these arches. And the first time they fire it, and from then on, every time they fire it, they are actually firing these kiln bricks. So they are completely raw bricks that would dissolve in the rain until they start firing it, and as it gets heated up from the inside, and things are being fired on the inside, these bricks become ceramic. They're no longer clay; they become ceramic, and they're hardened from the inside to the outside. And so we we've actually dedicated a whole chapter to these kiln bricks and to the whole architecture of this kiln, how it was built, how it also changed over time as they tried to turn it into something a little bit more efficient, because it wasn't just architecture; it was. Was a tool. It was an oven. It was a way for them to make money. So they always looked for ways to improve it, to to make it a, a better kiln. Another chapter we have is the reburial urns. These large. 
jars that were used to put your ancestors' bones in, and then they would be left actually at the cemetery. And each year you would go and visit, and, and those bones would be put in those jars. In Chinese, they're actually called gum top, which literally means gold urn, and it's gold. One of the experts explained to us it's gold because in Chinese culture, your ancestors' bones is worth as much as gold, and so what you're putting in there is like gold. And nowadays, it's actually quite. Rare to, to even have a space to put a reburial urn, but back in the 50s and 60s, this was very important part uh, and ritual of funerals. Another chapter that we have is on sagars. So uh, what, what we call sagars in the ceramic world are basically these ceramic pots that are used. So that when you fire something, you actually protect the thing that you're firing. So you know these glazed pieces of fire pots, wine bottles. You don't just put them in directly in the kiln. You put them in these sagars, and then you use the sagars to stack them up so that you use maximum space in the kiln. The sagar was kind of what we call a secret weapon because it it allowed them to to use the kiln super efficiently, and it it made for a successful firing. Because otherwise, if you didn't have them, everything that had glaze on it would just stick together and melt together at the end of the firing, and the The last chapter we have is about a Guan Yu. Guan Yu is a kind of a, a fictional, kind of legendary god of war in Chinese folklore. And in this Shiwan tradition that we talk about, he is somebody who's often depicted. And it's quite amazing, actually. We've managed to locate an artist. His name is Louis Lo, who was quite a young boy in the 70s, and he was making, you know, he was a student of a very famous ceramic artist, and he was sculpting these Guan Yu figurines, and he would take. Them and get them fired at the kiln, and some would save him the best spot in the kiln so that the glaze would come out beautifully. Now, in his case, just like with all the other things that were fired there, everything that came out beautifully got sold off. But this Guan Yu somehow had a crack right along the waist, and so Louis has managed to retain this one artwork that was fired at the kiln all these years, and he still has it. All the other chapters are really about things of day-to-day wear. I think when you then get to this chapter and you see this incredible. Figurine that he made, and how beautifully the glazes came out. Then you also realize the kiln was also capable of firing artworks, and the the worker and the foreman, Lang Sam, was so skilled that he could really do all of these different things in this what looked like kind of this humble ceramic factory. When you describe the community that was around this kiln, you know, as you say, all the various stages, going right from the the ingredients, the the, the sacks of white clay and uh, other aspects, and and this sort of industry of this community around all doing their different jobs. Then it came to that point, as you say, where they were stacking up the sagas and then getting gradually ready the foreman for the firing, which must have been the most nerve-wracking thing. Now you mentioned about Guan Yu. Was there actually a, a god or a figure of the kiln workers that? They prayed to before they fired it up. <laughs> We've asked this question as well. So we we found some books by by um, a very interesting man by the name of Ho Bing Chong, who wrote some wonderful books about Hong Kong ceramic industry in the 40s until the 70s. And he says, actually, you know, the Shirwan masters back home in in the mainland before they fired, as you said, you know, their whole livelihood depended on it. So the ritual would have been that once everything was loaded and they've sealed all the openings and they're about ready, they would pray. To the god, basically, it's the god of of the oven. So it's actually the kitchen god as well. So it's also the the kitchen god. And then the other thing they would do is they would walk all around the kiln and they would yell loudly. And I think that ritual is actually coming out of a very practical notion of making sure there were no kids or people oh, god, or animals、yes. lying around close by, because especially in the winter. 
people might be trying to get some warmth from it. Um, so this was described in the book that we read. And so we went back and asked Lang Pakchun, who's the son of Lang Sam, who still lives there today and acts as like a guardian to the kiln. We asked him. So that's a oh, foreman. The, that's a foreman's son, isn't it? Yes. The foreman's son. Um, and also his, his daughter-in-law, who's also, who used to also help with the firing. We asked them, so, so did you guys do that? Did you, did you guys also, you know, do the praying? And they just laughed at it and they said, Oh God, no. Lang Sam, very typical of, of some of the ceramic masters in the past had a lot of problems with his lungs because of all the clay dust he breathed in all over the years. And so if you ever were to light up incense sticks in front of him and try to kind of, you know, pray to the gods, he would just yell at you and say, just put that out. That's going to make me cough. So apparently they did it with, with much less ceremony and they were much more pragmatic about it when they got to Hong Kong. My thanks to Liz Lau, who runs Lump Studio in Wong Chuk Hang and is also the vice chairperson of the Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group. If you'd like to pre-order a book on the crowdfunding site, then find the Dragon Kiln page on kickstarter.com or go to the Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group Facebook page or you can contact Liz Lau on the Concern Group email, hkdragonkiln at gmail.com. That's hkdragonkiln at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> <laughs>